Let me uh, begin by updating you on a couple things and making sure that you're informed on them tonight. We do have corporate prayer tonight. It will be our regular corporate care gathering, not prayer gathering rather, not a members only time. So I encourage you all to come and hope you'll make that a priority. Join us right here tonight at six o'clock. Um, the Northwake worship team's CD is available in the lobby for purchase after the services. If you miss it there, you can get it on iTunes, but uh, pick it up out there if you have a chance. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. The last thing is there is an upcoming parenting conference here at Northwake. Several of our elders will be involved in encouraging you as parents. If you are a parent, you need encouragement, you should sign up for this conference. You can do that online at our website. Um, if you would be willing to serve our families at that conference, there is a sign-up for those of you who might be willing to provide assistance with child care and other matters in the lobby. So I hope you'll take note of all those things. Um, what we are doing uh, this year is um, our elders every year map out a priority for our church, an area of spiritual growth they want us all to grow in and this year, what they've targeted is the idea that we would learn how to be the church and not just go to church. It's a good thing to go to church, but it's not all that, that we long to be, that God longs for us to be. We want to learn how to be the church, and that's what's behind our study of 1 Corinthians on Sunday morning, that through a broken church, we might learn better how to be the church in the letter to 1 Corinthians. But we're peppering that with instruction um, from time to time on different points of the membership covenant at North Wake. If you were to join North Wake, you're asked to join us in a covenant that involves a number of points. And the two we want to talk about this morning are these two. One, I will responsibly steward my spiritual gifts through service. And secondly, I commit to steward <clears throat> my material resources in a way that honors God. And giving to the local body at North Wake will be a regular part of that stewardship. Um, we are, over the next several weeks, going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll be studying the whole matter of spiritual gifts then. And later this fall, we'll be looking <clears throat> at stewarding our material resources. We have about three weeks set aside for that, so I'm not going to talk about either of those things this morning. What I'm left with is those two little words at the end of that first point, through service. So that is what I'll be focusing on and encouraging you in this morning, I hope. But before I dive into that, there is one matter related to our material resources that I do want to make you aware of. Um, there is a, a need and an opportunity for extra generosity towards a special need in our church, and that is towards providing a new building for our children. Um, I'm not talking about some massive building. I'm talking about a building on wheels, this is the most modest building we could come up with that would meet our kids' needs. It is a modular building, a used modular building, but it is overdue about a year. Our kids needed this building in place a year ago, and we are eager to get it in place for them. Our second and third grade class now runs uh, in excess of 35 kids in that class. So, Les, you would like to be the volunteer in the study serve continuum to face that. Um, I can't urge you to share gladly enough in this special offering we want to take in the next several weeks towards this building. So we hope by the end of August to raise just $41,000 will buy us two new classrooms for our kids. Um, and that's a, that's a priority need. And we need your prayerful participation in that. So I hope that 
uh, you will pray about that and join us in that so that by the end of August we can release uh, them to bring this facility and begin to get it online for us as quickly as possible. So if you'll join me, we'll pray about that right now and also our time in the Word. So let's pray together. God, I know it pleases you when we are generous. I, I can't help but think especially so when we're generous towards our kids that they would be encouraged to grow and to know you. Um, So I pray that you would mark us with that kind of generosity, glad generosity towards this project. Father, we need you to meet our needs in that regard. I pray too this, that the teaching of the word this morning would help with the alignment of our hearts, with your good plan for us, with who you are calling us to be as people who name Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So give us ears to hear your word this morning and that it would be proclaimed truly and faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Dean Simonton is a psychologist at the University of California, or he was, and um, he has been studying greatness. In fact, he's written a book about it. He's focusing on what it is, how it is achieved, and who is most likely to achieve it. And Over the course of three decades, he built this database of 33,000 high-profile figures that he considers to be great. There are over 2,000 scientists, 2,000 philosophers, 500 musicians, 300 kings and queens and sultans, about 700 composers, 400 writers, and 39 U.S. presidents. All are in this database trying to figure out and sort out this whole idea of greatness. Um, What he says is that greatness involves making a contribution that is unique, that is at a level at which no one else or very few have made. Think uh, Michael Jordan in basketball. The most telling characteristic in terms of who would make those kind of accomplishments is the age at which a person begins to show interest or ability in that particular field. Uh, For instance, Bobby Fischer began to play chess at age six. Pascal wrote an original work on conic sections when he was 16. Mozart composed his first keyboard pieces by the time he was five. I preached my first sermon professionally when I was 33. Uh, So, just saying. After... Other characteristics of those who attained greatness are intelligence. Um, They've actually figured out a way to administer the IQ test posthumously. After you're dead, they can go back and figure out what your IQ was somehow. Uh, For instance, John Quincy Adams, IQ of 175, which is right smart. If you you divide by some whole number, you probably get your or my IQ out of of that. Um, Inborn aptitude is another one. And that just means you come from a family of greatness. For instance, uh, Judy Garland and her daughter, Liza Minnelli. uh, Cousins Franklin and Teddy Roosevelt. uh, People like that. So according to Dr. Simonton, unless you were a child prodigy that pushed the upper limits of the IQ charts while having been born into a family noted for greatness, you are not likely to be great you're more likely to be cited in a study about mediocrity. Okay? Um, against that 
Against that backdrop, though, of the almost impossibility of achieving greatness, today in the passage we want to look at, Jesus is extending the invitation to greatness to every single one of us. To those of you who are not child prodigies, you may have been called other things as children, but not prodigies, Jesus is calling you to greatness today. And it comes to us in, in Mark chapter 10, the last verses in that chapter, starting in verse 32, where Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem uh, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples, it says, they were astonished and those who followed were afraid. Why is this such a fearful journey to Jerusalem? And I think because we're dropping into the middle of Mark without having read the story leading up to this time and what follows, it's easy for us to miss what they knew. And that is, this is not any ordinary trip to Jerusalem. It's not a shopping trip. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And their anxiety about it is only enhanced with the awareness that Jesus is leading them there. He is leading, and they are following. And he is going to an intentional death, of which he had remarkable foreknowledge. In the next couple of verses, it says, he took the 12 aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, a reference to himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to die with remarkable insight into the detail of it. He knew about the betrayal, the key players. He knew about the mocking and the spitting and the flogging. All of the suffering that would wait for him, he knew. And uh, it's just an example of his stunning foreknowledge of what waited him in Jerusalem. And it is an example of amazing faithfulness in light of that level of suffering that he was fully aware of. And then, almost it seems like out of the blue, two of Jesus' disciples approach him with the most out-of-context, goofy question that you could imagine. Um, Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, Come to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay. And against this backdrop of Jesus just explaining to them the great suffering he's going he's gonna to face, these two guys come up and say, oh, Jesus, could you do anything we ask of you for us? And, and Matthew preserves this same order of these two accounts. They're back-to-back in both Mark's account and Matthew's. This would be like um, you just find out that your parents have terminal cancer and the first thing out of your mouth is, so am I going to get the dining room set? I mean, it's just goofy um, that this kind, you find yourself asking, how can this 
such selfish posturing follow right on the heels of such unselfish resolve? It's a question worth thinking about. In verse 36 and 37, Jesus asked them, so what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And their question here tips their hand about what they think greatness is. Greatness to them is positional. It's, a, it's being above everybody else. It's being better than. It's being greater than. It's a comparative, maybe even a competitive thing. And the way they go about achieving it displays that. They, they come up with this plan. It's a shrewd plan. It's kind of a power play while the other ten disciples are not around to get the upper hand on them, to get the best seats in Jesus' glory. So when the other ten are not around, they come. But they didn't come alone. According to Matthew's account, they brought their mom. Look at, look at how Matthew records this. It's fascinating. He says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And so Matthew records this as coming from their mom. And I think Mark is just helping us see that these guys probably put their mom up to this. This is leverage with Jesus. And at first you may wonder why. Well, uh, historians think that probably their mom was Jesus' aunt named Salome. So imagine your aunt comes up to you. Your sweet aunt comes up to you. She kneels down in front of you and says, I have a request for you. Who's going to say no to their aunt? I mean, these guys are leveraging Jesus to get what they want. Um, but notice what happens to them as a consequence of their pursuit of greatness, of this kind of greatness in this way. Their fellow disciples become competition whom they are to prevail over. They're trying to elbow them out so they're the ones that get the prominent places. And they even, it seems, use their mom as a stepping stone to accomplish their purposes. Uh, there's a poem by a fellow named Robert Rains. He said it really, really well. He says, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors and direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. Lord, I am like James and John. See, though they acknowledge his glory... It's tainted by their pursuit of their own. 
And while it's acceptable on the football field, competition is an ugly thing in the church. And when it's pointed out to us, it it seems almost downright silly. Here's an example. Two churches. Church on the left, their sign, we care about you. Church on the right, yeah, but we've got better music, right? I mean, competition in the church is just silly. It's goofy. When Baptists compete with Methodists and Presbyterians as to outdo them or prevail over them, this is silliness. Or worse, one blogger tells it this way. He says, a member of our staff, church staff, struck up a conversation with a pharmacist. Things turned in such a way that she invited him to a family night hosted by our church. His initial response? He said, I like competition with my sports, but not with church. And she said, what? She soon learned that he wasn't yet a Christian, but had started attending a church to explore faith for his life. That church, unfortunately, soon split, leading to a new church across town. From that point on, he felt nothing but competition seethe through the psyche of the originating church in the messages and almost every new venture. He left in search of a new church, landing on one that showed promise, but within weeks he picked up on it again. The mission of the church seemed to be being better than the other churches in town. The storyline was simple. No other church in town is like us, as good as us, is doing what we're doing, or loves Jesus like we do. Aren't you glad you're here and not there? It was at that point that he stopped going to church, he says. All of this has its roots right here with James and John and their mistaken pursuit of greatness. Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. They're confused about this matter of greatness. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answer. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And Jesus essentially says they don't understand two things. They don't understand what true greatness is, and they don't understand what true greatness costs. The image of the cup here is the image of suffering. To drink of the cup is to share in Jesus' suffering. And I don't think James and John get it at this point. Their response is entirely too eager if they understood what it meant for them. And Jesus just defers the brothers' requests, indicating that God has already secured these positions, and Jesus is not about to overturn the Father's decision based on his aunt's request. It's another beautiful example of submission within the Godhead as Jesus is radically committed to the will of the Father. And so, their elaborate scheme, it's failed. They went to all that trouble, and the positions they were petitioning for are already filled. And to make matters worse, the rest of the disciples find out. 
in verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They are ticked off that these two guys would do this to them. And they're also ticked off, I think probably, that they didn't think of it first. Okay. Uh, because this is a recurring debate. If you read it, it happens over and over and over again with the disciples. They're debating who's the greatest. Who's the greatest among us? Jesus steps in, calls them together, and explains to them what it means to be truly great. And he does it first by showing them what true greatness is not to look like amongst them. He calls them together and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, Not so amongst you. Not so amongst you. This kind of leadership evidently was the prevailing leadership model amongst the governing authorities in Jesus' day. Uh, The emperor at that time, Tiberius Augustus, had a coin minted with his image, has this slogan on it. He who deserves adoration. Okay. I mean, that's the kind of leadership that Jesus is saying, no, not you. Not those who claim to follow me. Greatness is not about getting a position over someone. It's not about becoming better than or more important than or more powerful than. It's not about being the president or the quarterback or the queen. It's not determined by your position or your accomplishments or your intelligence or your lineage. That's greatness according to Simonton's study. And that may be greatness in the eyes of men, but it is not greatness according to Jesus. Jesus then defines what he means by true greatness. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He's saying true greatness is not about positions of power or of domination. Rather, it's about a posture of serving. It is about humility. True greatness is not about exalting me. It's about serving you. Jesus' language is severe here. He says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He is not just telling you a new way to be number one. If you want to be better than everybody else, then serve everybody, and then you'll be number one. He is disassembling greatness such that it doesn't even resemble the path they were on or the object they were after. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you have to abandon your pursuit of it and serve everyone. Become a slave to all. Philip Yancey uh, painted a vivid portrayal of this for me in in some writing he did about the life of Henry Nouwen. Um, Nouwen was trained in Holland as a psychologist and a theologian. He spent his early years achieving, Yancey says. He taught at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard was in demand as a conference speaker internationally, and wrote more than one book every year. 
according to Yancey, he had a resume that was to die for, which he says was the problem. His achievement was killing his spiritual life. So he went to South America and took a role as a missionary in a third world country for a season and eventually ended up uh, taking a role at a place called the Arch Community, Arch in um, France, and then ultimately a similar one called Daybreak in Toronto, where this great Yale-educated, Harvard-educated Notre Dame professor had as part of his job to care for a profoundly mentally retarded man every day named Adam. And this is how Yancey describes his visit. He says, I once visited Nowen, sharing lunch with him in his small room. It had a single bed, one bookshelf, and a few pieces of Shaker-style furniture. The walls were unadorned except for a print of a Van Gogh painting and a few religious symbols. Um, There was no fax machine, no computer, no daytime or calendar posted on the wall. He said, after lunch, we had a special celebration of the Eucharist for Adam, the young man now and looked after. With solemnity, he says, but also with a twinkle in his eye, now and led the liturgy in honor of Adam's 26th birthday. Unable to talk, walk, or dress himself, profoundly retarded, Adam gave no sign of comprehension. He seemed to recognize at least that his family had come. He drooled throughout the ceremony and grunted loudly a few times. Later, Nowen told me it took him nearly two hours to prepare Adam each day, bathing and shaving him, brushing his teeth, combing his hair, guiding his hand as he tried to eat breakfast. These simple, repetitive tasks took for him about two hours a day. Yancey's thinking, this is not a good use of this brilliant man's time. So he makes a proposal to Nowen that couldn't somebody else take care of these menial tasks so that he could be about more important things. He said that I had completely misrepresented him, or yes, misinterpreted him. He says, I am not giving up anything, he insisted. It is I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. He says, all day now and kept circling back to my question, bringing up various ways he had benefited from his relationship with Adam. It had been difficult for him at first, he said. Physical touch, affection, and the messiness of caring for an uncoordinated person did not come easily. But he had learned to love Adam, to truly love him. And in the process, he says, he had learned what it must be like for God to love us. Spiritually uncoordinated, retarded able to respond with what must seem like God, like inarticulate grunts and groans. Indeed, working with Adam had taught him the humility and emptiness that desert monks achieved only after great discipline. Nowen said that all of his life, two voices competed inside him. One encouraged him to succeed and achieve, while the other called him simply to rest in the comfort that he was the beloved of God. Only in the last decade of his life, did he truly listen to that second voice? Ultimately, Nowen concluded that the goal of education and formation for the ministry is continually to recognize the Lord's voice, his face, and his touch in every person we meet. I think that's along the lines of what Jesus is thinking of when he thinks about true greatness. What would true greatness mean for you and for me? What would it mean for us? 
to pursue the greatness that Jesus is speaking about in the way that he is speaking about it. Now, I am indebted to the translation of the King James Bible for a remarkable insight in this matter in verse 43. It says, But so shall it be among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. So, there we have it. The minister is the greatest. Right there in the Bible. The King James Bible, no less. You guys might want to memorize that in that translation. Make it, make it your life verse. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind exactly. But shouldn't it be the case? Shouldn't your pastor be the greatest in the sense that what Jesus is talking about? Shouldn't he be the servant of all? Um, and since I know your pastor personally, I know he would welcome your prayers in this matter as it's one of his greatest struggles. What does it look like for us to be truly great? There are workers here. There are employees and employers and co-workers and partners. What does it mean for a worker to be truly great? Maybe being more concerned about serving his co-workers than getting to a position where they will serve him. Maybe that would be true greatness. Is that your reputation? Where you work? Are you known as the one who serves or the one who climbs? There are spouses here. What makes a spouse great? I think about an event that happens in virtually every home most days, most weekdays anyway, homecoming. Spouse or spouses who work come home, and what do you desire at homecoming? What do you want? Just to be served. If you're the one coming home, you just want to kick your feet up and relax for a little bit. Turn on the tube, watch the news, no voices, no demands. If you're the one that's been home all day, what do you want? To be served. Just a little bit, a break. Take those varmints for a few minutes. (laughs) Give me a break. Perhaps the greatness that Jesus speaks of means coming home to serve. What is at the forefront of your mind when you come home or when your spouse does? Is it serving her? Is it serving him? There are kids here. What makes a great kid? You know, um, my parents have both passed away. But I'm confident that if you ask my parents when they were alive, if I was a great kid, they'd say, Larry was a great kid. You know, and they would cite uh, extracurricular activities that they could be proud of. They would say, I was a good student, and I'd gone into reputable professions. I was an engineer and and then a pastor. They'd say, yeah, Larry's Larry's a great kid. But I think, honestly, based on my youth and the teaching of Jesus, my parents were wrong. Because I did not serve my parents well as a youth. And so, 
if you are in your parents' home, while you have the opportunity, Jesus is calling you to greatness by serving them. And I know that that is definitely not cool. But why settle for cool when you can be great? You know, far too many of us have abandoned our dreams of being great. We're just settling, okay? We're just trying to get by. We don't have the size or the vertical leap or the intellect or the voice or the shape or the startup capital or the time to go back for the necessary education. We got bad lineage. We're not smart enough. We just got too late to start on this thing. What Jesus is saying today, he is restoring to each one of us the dream of greatness. He is requiring of all who would follow him aspirations to a different kind of greatness. And nobody said it more eloquently that I know of than Martin Luther King when he spoke about this very text. He said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Jesus has, in a sense, made greatness attainable for us all. In a sense, he requires it of us all. But few will attain. Because whatever Jesus has done, he has not lowered the bar for greatness. I think he may have raised it. See, not only did the disciples not understand the nature of greatness. You remember, they didn't understand its cost. I think that's why they were so eager. Because in the next verse, in verse 45, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in just a couple pages in your Bible, Jesus is going to, to ride into Jerusalem And he's going to be falsely accused and betrayed and mocked and spat upon and beaten and flogged. And he's going to be crucified. And he is showing us what it means to be truly great. Eventually, James and John, they get it. History tells us that they both likely died martyrs' deaths. I don't think that means we all have to be martyrs. But I do think Jesus was asking us to release our dreams of greatness before men so that we might be great in the eyes of God. The greatness of a servant will likely cost you greatness before men. There are exceptions. I th- think about Mother Teresa. 
You know, she was a remarkable servant, the humblest of servants, and yet achieved international acclaim. But that's the exception, not the rule. For instance, anybody know who took Mother Teresa's place? Anybody? I have no idea. That's how serve, somebody's serving in that ministry. Somebody's caring for the poorest of the poor in India. But I don't know who it is. Really, probably God is one of the few who do. You may very well end up serving those you hoped would serve you. Jesus would gird himself with a towel and wash his friend's feet. Um, and he says to his disciples after he does that, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And this, this is humanly impossible unless we are ransomed from our sins. That's what he means in verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We must be ransomed by this greatest of servants. We must be set free from our selfishness and our sin by nothing less than the gospel, the good news that Jesus, who loved us and in humility sacrificed himself for us on the cross, for greatness wannabes like us, he died to ransom us from our sin so that we could be free to pursue real greatness. This morning, will you humble yourself and bow before the one who died for you? Will you trust in his ransoming work on the cross to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and that is pay for your sins? You may never have thought about that in that way before, or you may have never said yes to that opportunity, but today God is extending to you the opportunity to have the ransom of Jesus applied to your sins for you to be amongst the many if you will just believe in his great ransom on your behalf. For those of us who are among the many, we have been ransomed. We do believe. Perhaps this challenge from the writings of Philip Yancey once again will be helpful. He writes that towards the end of his life, Albert Einstein removed the portraits of two scientists, Newton and Maxwell, from his office wall. And he put up two other portraits in their place, Gandhi and Schweitzer. He explained that it was time for him to replace the image of success with the image of service. And it may very well be that you are very aware right now that God is pressing you. God himself is pressing you. He's calling you to make that same change. To give up a selfish pursuit of greatness and pursue it in a whole other way by serving in a very tangible way. Maybe, maybe it's at home. Maybe it's where you work or go to school. Maybe it's here in this family. But if that's the place, let me encourage you. In just a minute, our team's going to come, lead us in a closing time of response. You should make your way down front and bow low in a symbol of humility and make that commitment before God by his grace that you're going to follow the ways of Christ and pursue 
true greatness as a servant. Let's bow together. Jesus, we are your disciples and we are just like them. We want you to do for us that which we want. And and that's all twisted up. And it is so upsetting to us that you who deserve to be served did not come for that, while we who don't deserve it fight for it so harshly, so so desperately. We thank you that by your ransom there is freedom from our sins and from slave enslavement to them. Hear our prayers of confession and repentance and consecration now, Lord. May we walk as you, not to be served, but to serve. We ask this in your name. Amen.